Welcome to Yours, Mine, and Ours. My name is Gabrielle Cardona. I'm a relationship coach and an MBTI practitioner. Over the last 15 years as a coach, I've worked with individuals and couples, and I help people understand themselves better because it's only then that they are able to truly accept others. And that's the key to connecting with others in a profound and meaningful way. It's creating peace within yourself first. Welcome to the show. Now, last week we talked about setting yourself up for success. Now, there are many different challenges that anyone could face in the process of reaching personal success in the form of happiness. The key is knowing how to be ready with the tools and resources at your immediate access in order to deal with those different challenges that will inevitably present themselves in life. Those things included you know, staying motivated and avoiding loneliness, positive thinking, maintaining focus, creating energy, and managing negative emotions. We're all familiar with all of those things. But what would happen if you genuinely didn't know what the problem that you needed to address was? I've had many conversations with people about how I'm convinced that knowing your true nature in the form of your personality is the best way to equip yourself to take care of yourself. Because when you know who and how you truly are, you are better able to address your personal needs. You're able to do that because you can immediately identify what those needs are, and you're more accurate when you're making that identification. And when I explain it, I like to use a metaphor. You just move through life in a certain way as an individual. I give an example of how do you get to the beach? Well, it depends. Are you a bicycle? Are you a plane? Are you a car? Hmm, are you walking? <laughs> you need to know that. That's kind of a little detail. Actually, it's everything. Because once you know that you're a plane, almost half of the anxiety goes away simply because you know you need to not be on the freeway. <laughs> or if you're a bicycle, you know what? Just, just stay off the freeway. You can go on a road. It's okay to stay on a road. Now, if you're still struggling to get to your destination, even though you are flying like you should with an airplane personality, perhaps there's an issue with the jet itself. You need to take care of it. That could be self-care. Or because there's a problem, a genuine problem with the pilot in the sense that you're actually doing doing something flying related in good physical personal condition, but the activity itself is being performed in a non-healthy way. So I ask people a question in the form of, is what you're doing just not true to your nature, like a plane trying to fit in a lane on the highway? Or is it because you need to address something with your physical condition that has absolutely nothing to do with the activity itself? It's time to stop and rest truly taking care of yourself? Or do you have specific issues as an individual that you need to address as quickly as possible, but as effectively as possible because it's affecting more than one kind of activity in your life? It could actually be hurting you or the others around you that you care about very much, and that's something that needs to be addressed in a very different way. So, going back to an original question, how important is it to know your true nature? It's vital. It's the only way you'll be able to consistently determine the actual issue that you're having that needs resolution and then putting the tools and resources that you have at your access to immediate and constructive use. Now, I covered six different kinds of activities that would be helpful in six different situations that I just listed, depending on what kind of challenge was preventing you from reaching your goals. But let's even take a step back and start at the very beginning with a great general question to help you determine your perspective and where it has put your mindset. Would being successful in life bring you happiness or is being happy as a person the true definition of success? Today I'm going to open up the lines to my listeners early on in the show because as we go through several different concepts and explanations, you may have some questions. 
Asking questions as they come up is ideal in a show like this. So if there's something that you want to ask, please feel free to call. The number is 888-627-6008. And we also have a dialogue box on the page on the website that I'm, I'm getting kind of used to. It's new to me. This is something that we've just set up recently. So be patient with me if you want to ask a question on the internet instead of calling in. That's fine, too. Okay, so we're going to cover the things I asked at the beginning about the three different factors. There's your personality, your current condition, and your personal issues. How do you identify those things? How do you specify? Okay, well, you know what? I know that for some people, self-analysis is tough. So, if it's easier for you to learn and implement these concepts that we're going to be covering in the show today by doing it with the example of someone else that you know and you care very deeply about, feel free to do that. Just do your best to look at things from a different perspective as you learn the ideas. So let's start with the first part, the nature of your personality. Now, a lot of people have heard of Myers-Briggs. It's a very common tool used in a lot of different, different settings but I'm going to go over the four dichotomies very quickly. We're going to be taking a much closer look at it than just the surface things like the letters. But I'm going to cover that really quickly so you can go ahead and take notes. The first part of your personality is your social energy. You're either an introvert or an extrovert. An introvert is someone who gets their energy when they are alone or just with someone who is very close to them, which for them is almost the same as being alone because the intimacy of the relationship allows them to go deep within themselves while they're with that person. An extrovert is someone who really enjoys being socially interactive. They're interactive with a lot of people, perhaps all at the same time. They love to get attention and they don't mind having a lot of eyes on them. They'll talk to just about anybody. Now, some people would say, well, if you're an extrovert, that means you're obnoxious. No, it doesn't. Or if you're an introvert, it means you're socially retarded in some way. No, it doesn't. It just means that if you're an introvert, you have a few very special relationships. And most of the time when you're talking, you don't speak loudly and you don't like to interrupt people. If you're an extrovert, you're very interested in including a lot of people in your activities and you don't mind meeting new people all of the time. And if you like them, generally speaking, you call them a friend. Some statements an extrovert might make, I look with my mouth instead of my eyes. And when I lose my train of thought, I can verbally find my way back. Now, what was I saying? I think it had something to do with the meeting we had this morning. Oh, right, right. It was about what Harriet said. And they keep going. Or, I enjoy going to meetings and tend to let my opinion be heard. In fact, I feel frustrated if I'm not given the opportunity to state my point of view. Some statements an introvert might make include, I need to recharge after spending time in meetings or on the phone or socializing for an extended period of time. And the more intense the encounter, the greater the chance I will feel drained afterward. Or, I enjoy the peace and quiet of having time to myself. I often find my private time too easily invaded, and I have had to learn to adapt by developing a high power of concentration to shut out noises and things going on around me. So basically with those concepts, you'll know by nature if you are an introvert or an extrovert. Now remember, everybody does everything. It's a question of what's easier and more natural and more enjoyable for you, generally speaking. Now, the second letter is S or N. That stands for sensory or intuitive. Now, this can be confusing to people because they use those words in a different way in their daily conversation. So keep in mind, this is just for the MBTI personality test. The second pair of letters is about where you focus as your senses are collecting information constantly and your mind is processing all of that information being collected by those senses constantly, if you're sensory, you are very, very focused on your external environment and you are engaged constantly 
in doing things in your environment. And you're paying very, very constant attention to everything externally around you. If you're intuitive, you pay more attention to what your mind and your body are saying to you. Your subconscious is working all the time, putting thoughts together, taking them apart, coming to conclusions, imagining concepts and potential concepts. And well, that's intuitive. There could be things going on around you. You just don't see them. You just don't hear them because if you don't have an immediate need to do those things, you would prefer to stay within yourself and listen to what your heart and mind are telling you about what's going on. Some sensory statements would include, I prefer specific answers to specific questions. When I ask someone the time, I prefer to hear it's 3.52. And I can get pretty irritated if the answer they give me is almost four or time to go. Or I like to concentrate on what I'm doing at the moment and I generally don't wonder about what's next. I would rather do something than just think about it. An intuitive might say something like, I tend to think about several things at once and I've often been accused by friends and colleagues of being absent-minded, but I wouldn't call it that. Or an, an intuitive could say, I find myself seeking the connections and interrelatedness behind most things rather than just accepting them at face value. I'm always asking, what does that actually mean? And I'll keep thinking about it until I come up with an answer. Now, the third dichotomy is about how you make decisions. When you're making a choice, do you put more weight on objective principles and impersonal facts, which means you're a thinker, or do you make the people involved in your decisions and their personal happiness your primary focus, which means you're a feeler? Now, stop right here. Thinkers are not smarter than feelers, and feelers are not more emotional than thinkers. Keep in mind the definition for the third letter. It's either T or F. A thinker cares about facts and information. A feeler cares about other people's happiness, genuine, personal happiness. Now, wouldn't it be great? Let's just all say it would be great if everything that was logical and rational and made sense always brought people emotional pleasure. Well, it doesn't. And so the times when it doesn't, and you actually do need to choose between that, which one are you more comfortable and more happy choosing? Some statements that a thinker might make would be, I like to debate and defend my point of view. Sometimes, just to expand my intellectual horizons, I'll argue both sides of an issue without personal conviction for either one, because I do like to think about it. Or, I generally don't like to put my own emotions on display for others to see, because usually they're not pertinent to the topic. Or, I don't believe it's necessary to like people in order to be able to work well with them and do a good job. Some things that a feeler might say, I feel like love cannot be defined. And I take personal offense at those who try to do that. Or I'm very good at putting myself in other people's shoes. I'm likely to be the one asking, how will this affect the people involved? And people tend to seek me out for warmth and understanding. And here's the, the favorite, my favorite. A thinker believes that people's behavior should be based on laws. A feeler believes that laws should be based on people's behavior. I think by this point, you'll definitely know which one you are more naturally inclined towards, but keep in mind, that's not always what you do in life, depending on what life, your life currently, allows you to do. And the fourth dichotomy is about how you carry out the decisions that you've made. How do you prefer to set up and move through life? Now, the letters here again, the terms themselves, kind of create some feelings for people, but in the sense of the MBTI, they're not the same as what you would say in daily life. You're either a perceiver or a judger. 
a P or a J. Now, judges are not more judgmental, and perceivers in the perception sense are only about these specific concepts. Judges enjoy set standards and established boundaries. Consistency and stability provide a sense of security for them that allows them to flourish without concern for what could go wrong. Where perceivers prefer to have the freedom to choose and do what they want. Using established rules and expectations are guidelines for them rather than mandates. Trusting their perception, they understand and accept that, you know what, in life, for every rule, there is an exception. P's are willing to respond to their surroundings and modify what they do in order to keep things going. That means they're relatively laid back. Now, some statements that a judger might make would be, I dislike having things undecided. Or, I make to-do lists and feel excited when I can check off something that I've completed. I may even add things to the list that were not originally there, just so that once I've completed that task, I really like to scratch it off. Or, I like to have a place for everything and have everything in its place. A perceiver statement would be, I kind of get distracted. I can even get lost between the front door and the car if something else comes up on my way to it. Or, I often rely on last-minute spurts of energy in order to meet deadlines. I can usually make the deadline, but I might kind of drive people crazy in the process. <laughs> or, I can turn most work into play. If it can't be made into fun, you know what? It might not actually be worth doing. Okay, now, obviously, everybody is more inclined to one or the other. So, going through the letters again, E or I, extrovert or introvert, S or N, sensory or intuitive, and the only reason that it's the second letter of the word intuitive is because the I has already been delegated to introvert. The third one is T or F for thinker or feeler, and the last one is P or J for perceiver or judger. Okay. Now, today we're going to look at the intricacies of how personalities work behind the scenes. I'm not going over 16 personalities. I'm not even going to go over the dispositions. Functional order is a very, very specific way to be able to determine what is natural for you in daily life. Not everything that people do in their daily life is true to their personality because that's what they have to show people and what they have to do in order to be fully functioning in the world that we live in. So, most people who know about Myers-Briggs don't know about what's called functional order because it's about four levels of functionality, including the activities in daily life that you have to do but that are not your personality's activities. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and tell the, I'm checking on the website to see if anybody has, nope, okay, we're not getting any messages here. <laughs> Let's go to the functional order. Okay, now, taking a closer look at what each level is about before we get to all of the, the terms of the letters of personalities, the functional order concepts are about what is easiest for you to do down to what's the hardest. The actual uh, terminology for functional order is dominant, auxiliary, tertiary, and inferior. Those are just fancy ways to talk about what you love to do down to what you hate to do. So, in more practical terms, each level could be likened to different things. Some things come naturally to someone, another things not so much. So I use the examples of breathing and eating and walking and running. Your dominant function is like breathing. Your auxiliary function is like eating. Your tertiary function is like walking. And your inferior function is like running. You have to do things in life that just aren't natural for your personality. They're not easy. They're not done well. And even if you are able to do it well, you shouldn't do it for more than a certain amount of time daily because if you do, it means that you're not spending time doing things that are natural for you, that's good for your personality, that's enjoyable for your personality, and that's very healthy for you. 
just generally speaking. Okay, so starting out with the dominant functions like breathing, this is activities that when you're doing them, you're so naturally inclined towards them, and you're gifted in them, happy to do them, they are in and of themselves their own reward. They change your biochemistry in positive ways and increase your emotional happiness. The mental stimulation and healthy energy that's created inside of you while you're doing these things is naturally positive. Spiritually, they give you peace. Now, breathing is a basic human activity that happens for people without any thought or effort, just like your dominant function. Humans need to spend their, all their life, every day, breathing. So in the context of personality, your dominant function needs to be something that you do throughout your day as a consistent activity, as a natural part of your daily life. Now, does this mean that it can't be done in a destructive way? Not at all. People can breathe in ways that are very damaging to them. They can hyperventilate or inhale elements that are harmful or even exhale in an unhealthy way. So when people perform the activities of their dominant function, they need to pay close attention to how they do them and even the environment that they're doing these activities in. This helps people to remain healthy, constructive, positive, and productive. Now your auxiliary function is like eating. You need to do it periodically. If you're going to keep going, you absolutely need to do it. And it's not really hard. You definitely enjoy it. These activities don't demand a significant amount of energy or focus for you, so you can do them for an extended period of time without any real effort. You could literally do them on autopilot pretty much any time they needed to be done, kind of like breathing. They're naturally gratifying, and being naturally good at them means you'll be successful when you're finished, and you'll feel good about having done well. Now, if for some reason it does demand focused effort at any moment for you to perform the activities of this function, it's likely because your attention and focus are simply elsewhere. When you finish doing whatever else you're doing, you'll definitely want to get a bite to eat by doing something using your auxiliary function. The fact that it's not typically difficult or uncomfortable means you're usually willing and able to do it without any resistance or any personal struggle. Now, the third level is the tertiary function, like walking. It takes effort and energy, but it's not too hard. You can't really justify complaining that you have to do it. Things that use your tertiary function require focused effort on your part to perform them because they don't utilize the natural strengths or talents of your personality. They may even directly conflict with your personal value system as a ter certain uh, personality type. This means that you not only need to be taught how to do them well, but you also need to practice them if you're ever going to get really good at them. Your body and mind may become forces of resistance from time to time, like walking. You don't always want to go for a walk. And even if or when you do become good at performing these kinds of activities, it's still going to require effort and focus for you to perform them for extended periods of time. Recharging when you're done will be necessary if you want to restore yourself to the state that you were in before you started. Humans can walk and 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 walk, not without breathing constantly and eating periodically and resting afterwards. Now, the inferior function, it's like running. It's exhausting and it's difficult. Now, with practice, you can do it well and even for a good length of time. And you can even appreciate the great things about it enough to occasionally enjoy doing it. But... Some things in life are just going to be challenging and overwhelming for you because they do demand that focus and energy and effort and personal sacrifice and determination and discipline. If you're going to master these skills and perform them in a healthy way for an extended period of time, they're just not going to be something you're naturally inclined to do. Now, it could be because your personality just passionately disagree with what these activities are about on the most fundamental level of who you are. Or they could be things that your mind and body just find it hard to do by nature because other things with little or no effort are so different and so much better and so easy. You know, it just someone or something in your life is demanding that you do it, so you got to do it. Well, running is hard and it requires muscular strength, flexibility, endurance, focus, 
personal discipline, that's the same thing with your inferior function. So by taking the time to understand the value of your inferior functions activities enough to accept it, you'll realize that you don't have to love to do something and it's okay that doing something makes you crazy. You can make peace with the fact that in life it simply needs to be done, but then find some way to restore yourself, recharge when you're done, and be rewarded in some way. Really do see the practical value of it. Mindfully appreciate and enjoy the rewards for your hard work. Okay, so how much of your day should consist of each activity? And which of those functions does each activity qualify as? Okay, well, in a day, let's just say in order to be healthy, eight hours of quality rest are vital to good health. Not just quantity of eight hours, but good quality. We'll go over that a little bit later in the show. So proportionately, your dominant function, like breathing, should be 60% of your day. That's nine hours a day you need to be doing your dominant function in order to be happy eating well your auxiliary function you need to do it 20 percent of the day that's about three hours in order to be healthy how about walking well your tertiary function 15 percent of your day that's about two hours you will be functionally successful as a person if you perform your tertiary function like walking for two hours a day sporadically sometimes at length but for the most part sprinkle it throughout your activities and then running your inferior function five percent of the day that's 45 minutes if you're doing it well you will be successful as a person and you'll still be healthy and happy and functional because you won't be exhausted. Just 45 minutes a day running, if you did it, you'd be a pretty healthy person and you'd be successful. And in the same way, your inferior function shouldn't really be more than that because if you're doing it more than that, then you're not doing some of the other functions. Okay, so how do you determine your functional order? Well, the functional order is about two middle letters of your personality. It's the S-N-T-F dichotomies. Now, the first and last letter of a personality indicate the preferred order and social orientation of the two middle letters. When you know the order and orientation of the two middle letters that are part of your personality, the order and social orientation of those letters that aren't in your personality, but that life still demands that you do at some point, are very easy to figure out. Okay, so an example, if you're an ISTP, you obviously enjoy the S more than the N, and the T more than the F. Remember the fundamental principle that nature is always balanced. So when you know the social orientation of one of the letters that make up your personality, like the S, you also know the orientation of the other one, that's your personality, the T. For example, if your S is introverted, your T will be extroverted. So the first step is determining the social orientation of those two letters. Then if you're an introvert, you'll obviously prefer to do your introvertedly oriented function more than the extroverted one. And if you're an extrovert, your favorite activity will be the extrovertedly oriented one. That's easy enough to understand. So is your second letter or your third letter of your personality extroverted? The last letter is what determines the social orientation of its internal functions. It does not indicate what you will do more often, but rather which one you do in a socially interactive and extroverted way. That's because carrying out decisions in life you will eventually and inevitably need to be socially interactive. Carrying out decisions involves being with people at some point. Of the two internal functions, the second letter, sensing and intuition, are perceptive activities. Gathering and processing information demands the use of perception. If the last letter of your personality is P, the second letter which will be either an S or an N of your personality, will have an extroverted orientation. 
the internal function that primarily involves judgment is decision-making. The third letter, the T or the F. If the last letter of your personality is a J, it's the third letter of your personality that will have an extroverted orientation as it's being done. So again, the two basic principles, the last letter of your personality indicates which of the middle two letters, internal activities, will be socially interactive, extroverted. And then the first letter of your personality reveals whether the extroverted activity be, will be the first or the second, the dominant or the auxiliary on the preference list. Okay, so let's take a few examples just to kind of practice this. For an ESTP, the P in this personality means that the perceptive function of sensing is going to be displayed in an extroverted way. Since an ESTP is an extroverted personality, their extroverted sensing function would be their preferred one, their dominant one, like breathing. This would leave the thinking function with an introverted orientation and a less preferred activity, it's auxiliary. It's like eating. Yeah, they do like to do it, but not nearly as much as sensing. Extroverted sensing is dominant. Introverted thinking is auxiliary. Well, how about an INTP? The P makes the perceiving function of their intuition extroverted. And for introverts, number two is auxiliary, leaves their thinking function with an, with an extroverted orientation. So, introverted thinking is dominant, extroverted intuition is auxiliary. An ESFJ, the J makes the judging function of feeling extroverted, and so it's also number one since they're an extrovert. Extroverted feeling is dominant, so then their sensing function is introverted, and it's number two, it's auxiliary. Now, opposite letters of each dichotomy, S is the opposite of N, and T is the opposite of F, they manifest themselves with opposite social orientations. So, if an S from a certain personality is extroverted, that means the other letter, the N, that they do not have in their personality, but they still need to perform, display it in some way, it will be introverted when it's done. Just because you're not an N doesn't mean that you'll never have to do N things in life. So then if a thinking function's introverted, then when someone engages in a feeling act, they'll be doing it in an extroverted way. Even though it's not part of their personality to do feeling things necessarily, they will still have to do them. And if their thinking preference of their personality is introverted, they will do feeling things in an extroverted way. Now, keeping in mind the principle of balance, as we go over the next part about actual order of activities, this balance also applies to the concept of degrees. To whatever degree a person favors the letter of a particular activity, like feeling, they will to the same degree resist its opposite letter, the thinking. To whatever degree a person is casual about one function, like sensing, they will also be casual about resisting the other letter of that function, the intuition. So let's just stay with the example of an ESTP. If one letter of someone's personality, like the S, is extroverted and dominant, it means that a person can do sensing things with little or no effort, like breathing, and they're inclined to do sensing things in a social way. That means the other letter of that dichotomy that's not their personality, the N, has an introverted orientation, and it's very, very, very difficult. At times, it's as exhausting as running, and it's going to be number four on their functional order list, their inferior function, the polar opposite of dominant. If introverted thinking is number two for an ESTP, it's auxiliary. It's nice, but it doesn't need to be done as often as they're sensing, like eating. The opposite letter of the T, the F, that's not their personality, will be unnatural for them to do. And it'll be resisted initially, but only to the opposite degree. It's number three on the list. It will be tertiary. It's not gonna be extremely hard or too unpleasant for the ESTP to do, but still it will take some time and effort to do, especially if it needs to be done for an extended period of time, like 
walking a long distance. We're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to look at the second possibility. If you know the activity that you're struggling with is actually something that's very natural for your personality, it's maybe dominant or auxiliary, but you're still struggling with it, is there something about your condition, your health that needs to be addressed separate from the activity itself? I'm Gabrielle Cardona. This is yours, mine, and ours. Welcome back to yours, mine, and ours. I'm your host, Gabrielle Cardona, and the number for our listeners to call in if they have a question or comment today is 888-627-6008. Okay, so now let's take a look at your current state. If you already know your personality and you understand what's easy for you, what's, what's yeah, no, this is really tough, and I don't like to do it. <laughs> And you know, okay, you know what, this is something that I actually need to take a closer look at because it's not just something that I don't do well or that I don't enjoy, generally speaking. I talk with my clients about three elements that always need to be kept at a certain level. Food and rest and exercise. No one has ever disagreed with me that all of those things are important, but they don't always agree with the way that I approach them. Well, food, yeah, a balanced diet is absolutely vital to good health because it provides the nutrients that you need in order to be functional in a healthy way and in a happy state. Now, contrary to popular opinion, carbohydrates are not bad. Fruits and vegetables are actually great because they contain a a variety of vitamins and minerals. And the human body has many organs that perform many different functions. They need all different elements in order to do that. Sometimes supplements are an option because they contain a variety of vitamins and minerals, but things are always better for the body and soul when they are in their natural state. Synthetic is never better than organic, and good quality food is just a good idea. Okay, well then what about exercise? There's different kinds of activity. Aerobic and anaerobic are both important, and ironically, the lifestyle of the average American is about using machines and devices to do things that they would have otherwise done themselves with their own minds and bodies 200 years ago. The things that give us a sense of accomplishment at the end of the day are things that make us tired. But we feel great by the time we're done because they were useful and productive things. Now we need to go places like indoor facilities to use machines for activities that are necessary for high quality health and satisfying life simply because we have made machines to do those practical daily life activities for us, our life has become synthetic, so now we have to go to a different place in order to get those activities back infused into our daily activities. But exercise is important because it's what helps you crave high-quality foods and get the rest, the quality rest you need in order to be functional in a healthy way. Even things like stretching are good for your body because it gets you relaxed and it still energizes you. It moves your body to find the balance that it needs in order to be high-quality functioning. Not necessarily doing more things, but doing them in a better way. And then rest. Quality is as important as quantity when it comes to rest. All people, humans in general, need about 7 to 8 hours of quality sleep for every 16 to 17 hours that they are awake. Again, there are individual factors to take into consideration. Less than seven hours is not recommended. And more than eight is usually not necessary. Now, I've always said that the best order to focus on doing these things in order to get yourself into optimal condition are more exercise or activity in general, physically, then high-quality rest, then good food. They motivate and trigger each one in that order. Now think about it. The more active you are, the better you will just rest as a natural response. Then high quality rest and consistent activity will build your appetite, will create an appetite for better foods. Bad food does not taste as good if your lifestyle is healthy and active. Vegetables taste great and you're more willing to 
try them in different ways, prepare them in different ways. And the experience of being healthful will be a naturally flowing one because your lifestyle has already been set up to facilitate those experiences. Now, when you've taken the time to look at what your current lifestyle, your daily lifestyle consists of, you can fairly easily see what's going on with your body. Then, when you take the time to do the work to get yourself into a high-quality state physically, and if you know your personality, what things are the most enjoyable for you naturally, there's a lot of things you can do, do what's good for you, then you can determine if it's actually the third possibility deeper, serious personal issues that take an extended period of time and the help of perhaps a specialist in order to be addressed and resolved. And that's also why knowing your personality will help you to understand that an experience that someone else in your life had with you, it didn't seem to affect them. Why did it affect you? So again, always think about what you're doing in your daily life in the context of what's natural for you. And then when you're taking a very close look about what's going on inside of you, what has happened in your life to you, always put it in the context of how did that affect my personality in me? Okay, so sometimes when we're growing up, we have experiences with people who are not emotionally healthy and or or not mentally stable. These individuals can be important people in our lives who have not taken care of themselves or who have been hurt by people or experiences of their own. There are simply good ways to do things and bad ways to do things. Those principles and standards are fairly consistently accepted around the world, even by different religions or political philosophies or cultures. There are good things and there are bad things. Okay, so... What I like to do with my clients is stream of consciousness. Where are you inside of yourself in this moment? And what's going on behind the scenes? Not everyone's comfortable going through hypnosis, actually going straight into their subconscious. Because when you're removing all of the inhibitions and not aware of what the other person is doing, you are very vulnerable to anything that they might want to do to your body or mind. So... Having access to that very crucial, that very critical part of your mind, it's important and there are a couple different ways to do it. So the subconscious is able to store an infinite amount of information. The only problem, sometimes it thinks it's best if you don't know all the facts. <laughs> you can't handle the truth. May very well be the case from time to time, but maybe not. So part of increasing self-awareness is learning things about your life and yourself. Right here, right now, you can begin to equip yourself to successfully deal with reality. But your mind may have created some internal barriers to deny you access to some things. Like I mentioned, you're going to need to overcome those barriers, eventually breaking them down. But there are several ways to do this, including the stream of consciousness. Now, the definition of it is a narrative technique that gives the impression of a mind at work jumping from one observation, sensation, or reflection to the next, also referred to as interior monologue. Now, these different elements are usually expressed in a flow of words without conventional transitions from one thought to the next. So as someone is doing this stream of consciousness, one idea to the next, to the next, to the next, don't seem related to each other in any way, can come up and keep coming up. And so letting all of that happen, here's an example. Here's a sample of a stream of consciousness. I can't believe my mother actually wants to buy my children's love. God, how desperate can you get? I mean, the word desperate can mean a lot of things. That's why I think I think about sex when I hear that word. That's, that's beyond me. I always thought boys were desperate in high school. It was actually kind of funny. Man, I love that. They're so easy. I would love it if my work was easy. The time I actually got to work with my clients was pretty easy. It was fun. It wasn't even really like work. You know, like when I'm at home, it's just running errands and having to do so much work on the computer at home that makes it tough. I'd almost rather pay someone to do those things for me. And as soon as I start making enough money, I think I'm just going to hire someone. But obviously, I'll never make it. Enough. I mean, what is enough, though, really? Enough in a dollar amount, I've decided, is just what the magic number. Can everyone, any, hey, can anyone ever really make enough? 
whoa, whoa. That's it, isn't it? I feel like it's never going to happen for me. That's, that's actually what I'm truly afraid of. I'm scared that it's never going to be enough. Enough for me to be able to relax and stop stressing or want some safety and security. I'm afraid that security and safety will always be out of my reach. Ding, ding, ding! Aha! That's the epiphany. An epiphany is an experience of a sudden and striking realization. Now, 25 issues actually came up before that happened, but it was worth it in the end. But the best part of this process, only you will know when that moment happens. Stream of consciousness becomes easier and more natural as it's practiced. Based on the natural introvert, extrovert inclination of a person, sometimes doing it alone is best. Sometimes it's not. Doing with it with someone that you trust may actually be what you need. But knowing when and where and with whom you can best practice this activity is extremely important. Because based on what you've learned about your personality and your lifestyle, you need to take time to determine whether stream of consciousness is most effective for you when you're alone or with someone else. But either way, out loud is absolutely vital. Now, find places and times and people in your daily life that will give you the freedom to be spontaneous and to be able to perform this activity without any anxiety or interruption. Spend a week proactively searching for places and times and people throughout your day that will best facilitate and support you in your practice of this activity. Be aware of times that you're active in different places that you go throughout the day and be ready to take advantage of them to discover you and what you may need to do and what you have at your disposal. Now, when you're first doing a stream of consciousness session, try it with non-intense feelings and ideas. This will help you become accustomed to it and just comfortable, getting comfortable doing it as an activity. Instead of only using it for the solitary purpose of overcoming a mental or emotional impediment, which ultimately it can be used for, it should be used for. It should be attempted several times for several weeks daily practice to slowly break down any internal resistance that you may have naturally developed over the years. And doing it with seemingly little things will get your mind and body comfortable with the activity itself and practice makes proficient. A stream of consciousness epiphany can take just a few seconds or it can take several minutes to happen. The more comfortable you are while you're breaking down the walls between your conscious and subconscious, the more quickly and naturally it will happen for you. Okay. You might just realize that you genuinely don't have the answer. Your epiphany may be, wow, I got nothing. I, I literally hit a blank here. That's good to know too because that gives you, again, the starting point of where you need to get going to find the answer. Okay, now I have eight rules for stream of consciousness. Number one, always do it out loud. Number two, always be completely uninterrupted while you're doing it. Number three, always feel emotionally safe before you start. Number four, Always be in an environment where you will be supported. Number five, always be completely honest with yourself. Number six, always go until you reach a moment of enlightenment. Number seven, always be ready and able to relax when you're done. And number eight, always accept what you have just learned about yourself. The more comfortable you are with yourself, knowing your true nature, accepting your personality, and hearing yourself open up to yourself, the more willing your mind and heart will become to reveal more things to you. This will be what you need in order to really figure out what those things that you need are. Do you know what you need? Do you want to know what you need? So, getting to know your true nature may take a while. Sometimes people don't really know themselves well enough to even answer the questions that I ask people about their personality. 
It certainly takes concerted effort and accurate information and mindful focus. You might already know. Just say, actually, yeah, I've gone over this before. I've thought about it before. Or the questions that I'm thinking about now, I'm seeing it from a slightly different perspective. But as you learn who you are, the more equipped you are to give yourself what you need. That may be the motivation that you need in order to take the time to justify taking the time to learn your true nature. Identifying your actual need in your moment is the key in your life. When you have tools and resources that you've prepared for yourself, you will be prepared to use them successfully. And as I said at the beginning of the show, if you're having a hard time looking at yourself that closely, not just as a personality, but in the moment of what your your needs are, or maybe what's below the surface, beneath the surface issue that you may have, it's okay to start out by giving others what they need based on your insightful observation of them. Just knowing someone else's personality and saying, you know what, I know that my ESTP son <laughs> really does need to play with the matches. I think I'll go play with the matches with him. And that's how we're going to talk because his dominant function of extroverted sensing means that if I'm with him and he knows that he can talk to me, he'll actually tell me things that he would never have told me in another way at another time. Your willingness to be generous to others is actually a great way to start the process of taking better care of yourself. Now, that's not being self-centered. Taking care of yourself is about being balanced. Understanding people based on their true nature is a great way to open your mind and heart to get to know your true self. The things that you might need in life will become easier than for people to offer you because you'll be confident when you tell them not only what you need, but why you need it and how it will help you. When they see how well it works, when you take care of yourself, they are more than happy to be a part of the solution because the return on their investment, whether that's time or money or attention, it's invaluable. You have become the highest quality soul performing the highest quality activities, you're happy, you're healthy, and you're successful. Thank you so much for listening today. My name is Gabrielle Cardona, and on BBS Radio, this is yours, mine, and ours.